Well, good morning. I know some of you, a lot of you probably don't know who I am, but as he said, I'm the pastor of Restoration Road Church downtown in Snohomish, and I've known Sean for some time just as a friend and also just as a fellow member in the Three Strand Network. So uh, I'm glad to be here, and just an opportunity to preach here is, is just a pleasure. So our text this morning deals with something, I think, well, familiar to everyone, whether you're young or old, educated, uneducated, tall, short, ugly, good-looking, whatever category you put yourself in, it is going to apply to all of us. Either have or you will, excuse me, you will experience at some time what uh, the Bible calls temptation. Um, we often hear the word temptation and naturally think of being enticed to make wrong decisions to engage in bad behaviors, or to break good rules. And without question, there are real temptations to really sin in ways that really grieve God our Father. But I wanted to take a look at the temptation of Christ this morning, which seems maybe like an odd passage. I know you guys have been, I believe, in Romans. Uh, When Sean asked me to preach, uh, typically I just kind of find something to describe where I'm at personally. And so uh, the temptation of Christ is where we landed this morning. It will be in Matthew chapter 4. But the temptation of Christ takes us, I think, beyond just decisions and beyond uh, behaviors and beyond breaking or upholding rules to see kind of how we are really enticed by our enemy to sin. What's really going on when temptation comes? As the great reformer Martin Luther once wrote, the sin underneath all of our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. That, I think, is the heart, perhaps, of temptation, taking the matters into your own hands and not trusting the Lord. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 of the temptation of Christ This is God's word. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So if you know uh, anything about the different gospels, Matthew's gospel has a particular emphasis It's in part written to prove that Jesus is the true son of David, the Messiah, the long-awaited king 
of Israel. And in the beginning of his gospel, we have the genealogy. We also have the kind of testimony or description of the virgin birth to prove that Jesus had the required ancestry to be the king. And following that, you have his baptism where he proved that he had, in many ways, the required approval and the empowerment to fulfill the mission of the king. And now in his temptation, he'll reveal that he has the required character to be the king. And the entire scene is many things, but it is in some ways a a replay, if you will, of the original temptation of our first parents in the Garden of Eden. But where Adam, the first Adam, failed, the last Adam succeeds. And instead of silently listening to Satan's lies and disobeying God's word, Jesus proves that he is our blameless, sinless, sold out to God representative that Adam wasn't. Jesus, it's proven as the sinless substitute for us. He is the one who lives the obedient life that I was supposed to live, that we were supposed to live. He is the one who ends up dying the death that I deserve for my disobedience. And Jesus proves to be the only one who never fell short of God's glory. The only one who lived in perfect submission. The only one who can represent me, rescue me, and restore me eternally. And anyone who repent and believe. But his path to redemption is an interesting one, a surprising one. Here, Matthew writes that immediately after his public anointing of the Spirit at his baptism, he's led by the same Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted alone. Some of the greatest moments of temptation often follow I think some of the greatest moments of exaltation, that when things are going well, when things are awesome, when things are exciting, temptation is just around the corner. The blessing of a new marriage, a new promotion, a new child, or some new success can also bring the cursing of a new temptation. That's not guaranteed, but it seems to be a little bit of a pattern in Scripture and in life. Here we see that it's not an accident that Jesus finds himself in the wilderness. It is by divine design. He is led there. God does not cause temptation. God does not tempt, the Bible tells us, but he does lead us into places to be exposed and to be tested by temptation. It makes sense that we appreciate our Lord, as he leads us into good places with good things. But I think we often fail, perhaps, to appreciate the times, maybe in retrospect, but certainly not up front, when he leads us into bad places, difficult places, wilderness places, wilderness. I don't know about you, but I find myself right now in life in what I would describe as a wilderness. Led there by the Lord, I have to believe. At some point in our faith, I think we're all led into wilderness. Maybe several times in our faith journey, we're led into wilderness. Some of us have been there, and we remember that time. Some of us perhaps are there right now. Others 
aren't sure how you even know whether you're in wilderness or not. No one really knows for sure exactly where the wilderness was that Jesus was led into. We do know that between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, there is a large wilderness place. And the Hebrew term for it means the devastation. For some, I think wilderness is that place where you literally feel devastated. Maybe devastated physically. Maybe devastated emotionally. Maybe devastated materially. For others, wilderness is that place where you just maybe feel lost, you feel uncertain, you feel confused about decisions or directions. And for others, wilderness is that place where you just feel empty, hungry, or dissatisfied with life. I describe a lot of categories there. If you don't find yourself in that place at some point in your life, you must be an alien from another planet. Because that seems like normal life. But I believe wilderness is that place where God takes us to be alone with him. To be alone with him. It's a place where there is nothing and no one that can help you fix that problem you have but God. And because of that, wilderness becomes the place where you are most tempted to compromise, most tempted to disbelieve, and even sin, in order to fix the problem apart from God. Wilderness is that place where you are really desperate for a savior, a hero to rescue you. And the temptation is to find someone or something other than Jesus to save you from the hell that you're in or that you imagine. Wilderness. Wilderness. So why does God lead us into wilderness? Well, no one wants to be in the wilderness experience. No one is excited to go into the place of devastation. Yes, let that come to me. No one is looking forward or anticipating that, though it shouldn't surprise us because I think everyone needs one. I think God chooses to take us into those places where the only thing that we have is Him, which is really hard in our very busy, full world. He leads us into wilderness so that we'll get close to Him. Now, the English word for tempt always means to entice someone to do wrong or to invite them to, to sin in this context. The word can also be understood as testing. We are tested in the wilderness. It comes with temptation. And when we hear the word test, I used to be an English teacher, and you tested students to determine what knowledge they had, to prove that they were studying or not studying, that they had mastered the material or not. That's not the way or the reason why God tests us. God is not on some kind of exploratory exam to figure out what's in us. He already knows. He's not trying to determine whether we have faith or not. He already knows. I appreciate what the Apostle James 
writes in his epistle. He says in the first chapter, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So Satan has his purposes, right? He tries to break us, if you will, through these temptations, to hurt us through these temptations. But God is trying to build something in us or at times remove something that is hindering us. Satan intends to make us weaker. Satan wants to make us brittle, but like the tempering of metals, testing is one of God's methods to reinforce our faith. He turns up the heat, not to burn us, but to refine us, to strengthen our trust in him. Now, When we find ourselves in wilderness, we can often make the mistake believing that wilderness is actually the enemy. That the circumstances that is the wilderness that we find ourselves in, that's the bad thing. And I would assure you, it is not. All too often, we are so distracted by the real difficulties of wilderness, and they are real. Whether it be physical difficulties, emotional, material, whatever they might be, relational difficulties... Those are real hardships, but those aren't the real danger in the wilderness. There's a real danger in the wilderness that we see here as Jesus is tempted. A real enemy who the apostle Peter describes who is hungry like a lion. Looking for someone to devour in the wilderness. And he devours in that same passage through pride. And what is pride other than self-dependence and mistrust of God? He wants more than just our death. He wants more than just our suffering and our pain. He actually wants to rob God and receive worship. He has over 40 names in Scripture, including Satan, Lucifer, Prince of Darkness, the evil one. Matthew uses the name devil, which Jesus later describes him as the accuser, saying the devil is an accuser. There are no physical descriptions of the devil, though our culture has come up with some pretty creative ones. What we know is that the devil was a creation of God, an extremely beautiful, high-ranking angel, rebelled against God because he wanted to be God. God cast him out of heaven along with a third of the angels in heaven, and in Luke 10, Jesus said he saw Satan fall like lightning. From the beginning, the devil's agenda has been to rob God of glory by destroying God's people, destroying his Savior, or as we read today, diverting that Savior from his mission. The devil is a creation, meaning he is not all-knowing, he is not everywhere present, he is not all-powerful, he can only do what God permits him to do. But he is a defeated and defiant one. His power is great. His intelligence is off the charts. He is the best historian sociologist that exists. He has watched humankind for some time. 
His influence is powerful, but his attacks are pretty predictable. Since the garden, he has appealed to basically three things. The desire to feel good, the desire to be independent, and the desire to have more. The desire to feel good, to be independent, and to have more. Now, the great philosopher Russell Wilson once said, That separation, right, is in the preparation. So the first thing that Jesus does as he goes into the wilderness, before the temptation comes, is he does prepare a little bit differently than we might prepare for a great temptation. He decides to fast for 40 days. Perhaps people, someone in here has fasted for that long. I have not. I have fasted for much shorter times, and it is very difficult. 40 days to me sounds incredible, but I know others who have done it. It might seem counterintuitive to deprive ourselves of something so important as we're going into battle, but by fasting, Jesus is declaring some things, as we all do when we intentionally fast this way, namely, I want you, God. I hunger for you, God. I need more than anything else this world has to offer, God. Above all, Jesus knows that this is what is actually tested in the wilderness, that I need something other than you, other than your ways. About fasting, author and pastor John Piper once wrote that Christian fasting at its root is the hunger of a homesickness for God. If we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. When we find ourselves in wilderness, in a place of devastation, we need to remove whatever worldly distractions might be hindering or might hinder our communion with God. And why is that? Well, you see, wilderness can easily lead to some kind of escapism where you turn to substances or work or technology or relationships, or recreation, diversions, all diversions to prevent you from what? Feeling. Truly feeling. I want to feel my depravity. I want to feel my need. So how can I divert my attention? Truly, I believe, as Jesus exhibits here, we need to make ourselves hungry so that we can actually become desperately dependent on the Lord. But he also prepares himself with the word, right? He's not in there uh, ill-equipped. More than likely, Jesus spent 40 days meditating on the book of Deuteronomy because that's what he quotes most, a book that he likely has hidden in his heart since a very young age, as many Jewish young men would do. Deuteronomy was the last book that Moses wrote in the wilderness, before the Israelites walked into the promised land to battle the enemies of God. It's called the second law because it's a review of God's law. It reads like a sermon. 
Apparently, Moses believed that their best defense as they're on the cusp of going into battle was to remember what God had already said. This is where all of Jesus' responses to the devil's temptations come from. Christ didn't trust in his ability to recount a bunch of scriptures about behavior or morality. What we see actually is he remembers scriptures about God himself. See, temptation is not simply the enemy's effort to disobey what God says. At its core, I think it's the devil's effort to break our trust in who God says he actually is. Wasn't that the original temptation? It wasn't just eat this. It was, oh, no, no. Did God say that? Oh, no, no, no. That's not true. That says something about God, not the tree. That he can't be trusted. That he's holding out on you. So the first temptation in verse 3 comes at Jesus where he's weakest. After 40 days, Jesus' stomach is empty. He is hungry, as any human would be. And the temptation is for Jesus to basically find his own way. To seek his own satisfaction versus waiting. Trusting that God would relieve his suffering. Satan always attacks us where we're empty or emptiest. So be careful when you feel hunger pains. Hunger pains for success. Hunger pains for regard. Hunger pains for respect or love or affirmation from others. It can lead you to sin in order to get it. Convinced that you should not feel empty. You'll try to fill up that God-shaped emptiness with something that will never satisfy. Our flesh wants to feel good and the enemy tries to convince us that suffering or deficiency is bad. It would have not been sinful for Jesus to make bread out of rocks. What is sinful, though, is depending on something or someone other than God for life, for satisfaction, for salvation. And when we begin to fear that there is something other than God that we can't live without, we'll try to control everything to get that thing, the thing we fear losing most or not having most. Any effort to force our way, especially out of fear of loss, is a refusal to trust that God's in control. More than that, it's a refusal to trust what God has said. Because what Satan is really attacking here is who the Scriptures has declared Jesus to be, his identity. Having been declared the son at his baptism, the devil says, all right, if you are the son, prove it. Do something. One theologian said that doubt is the lever of temptation. So the enemy tries to create doubt in who God has said Jesus is. And when you begin to doubt who God says you are, you begin to feel empty. And you believe you need something more than the word of God to confirm and prove you're someone. 
someone worthy. I'm someone because I'm smart. I'm someone because I'm rich. I'm someone because I'm liked. I'm someone because I'm in leadership. I'm someone because I'm moral. I'm someone because I'm in charge. It should always be simply this. I'm someone because God says I am someone, and that's enough. I find it very powerful that Jesus at his baptism hears the Father say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, and he hasn't done a second of ministry yet. That we could rest there. We live by the living words pouring out of our living God. To avoid emptiness of an identity crisis, we must continually feast on those living words because we are being told things by the world perpetually, by the enemy perpetually, and even by our own flesh saying, you're not worthy, you're not this, this is who you are. And unless you combat that with the word of God who says, this is who you are in Christ, you will fall. And you will try to make your own way. Well, the second temptation in verse 5 comes at Jesus from a different angle, not where he is necessarily weakest. If Satan can't make you fall where you're weak or empty, I think he will often attack you where you are strong. Instead of being tempted to make his own way, Satan actually tries to tempt Jesus to twist God's way a little bit. So he takes Jesus to Jerusalem. Some mystical magic experience, right? Sets him on the top of the temple, challenges him to throw himself down to prove that he is the Son of God, right? Be who you say you are, Jesus. Seemingly using a move from Jesus' own playbook, the devil quotes Scripture to tempt him to jump. He quotes Scripture to him. Yes, the, Bible, the devil knows the Bible well. In essence, it's like this royal triple dog dare for Jesus, right? Jesus, the perfect Awana student. Oh, you know the Bible? You know the Bible says this. Satan is basically saying, you believe the Bible, don't you? You believe the Word, don't you? Then live by faith. Show us that you really trust God's Word, that you really live on every word of God like you just said. But Satan is manipulating Jesus by twisting God's Word. Historically, the Jews did believe that the coming Messiah would mark his arrival by standing atop the roof of the sanctuary. Here, Satan tempts Jesus to ascend to his rightful position through what I would describe as spiritual-sounding but unbiblical shortcuts. Spiritual-sounding but unbiblical shortcuts. This is a common practice, I think, of many people where they baptize what is obviously wrong in the spirit to make it look or feel or sound right. Twisting God's way to get their own. I'm sure no one in here has ever done that, intentionally or accidentally. But as I consider different wilderness experiences, even some of my own, 
When I see people in wilderness or I've had my own moment of devastation where things are just hard, I feel squished and broken and confused and all these things, I find a very real temptation to take part of God's word and twist it to get my way. Sure, pastors aren't supposed to say that. But let's be honest. I think we all do that a little bit. See, people do it all the time. I've heard people do it all the time. I've heard pastors do it very often. People decide what they want. And they add words like call or led by the Spirit to it to anoint their desires. Right? And I mean, it's hard to argue with that. Well, I feel led by the Lord. Oh, okay. Or even the Lord told me, how can I argue that? Not to suggest that the Lord doesn't work that way, but I found the opposite true. People often use God's words and twist it to get their own. I've seen pastors do it as well, take verses out of context, even corrupt, corrupt an entire sermon series to justify their vision for a church. Sounds spiritual. You're using verses and stuff. They do this ultimately because of this reason. As they read the scriptures, they see that God's way doesn't always agree or work the way we want. Whether it be the speed of it or the style of it. Interestingly, if you think about it, Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, Jesus himself, his disciples, they all knew what God had said that he was going to be king. Jesus knew he was king. But the devil tempts Jesus to doubt that God's ways, which might be slower, might be uncomfortable, might be irrational. Really? They don't make sense? Might be inconvenient. Might just be less spectacular. They cause him to question whether God's ways can really get him out of wilderness whether they can really lead to a better place. I think in many ways, Jesus is tempted to do something unbiblical, but religious-sounding and spiritual-sounding to prove that he's king. Jesus is tempted to do something shocking in order to draw attention to himself, even the attention is supposed to go to God. Being atop a temple is very different than being atop a cross. But Satan's use of Scripture doesn't stop Jesus from rebuking him with the right use of Scripture to the glory of God. We must not try to force God's hand and manipulate him into fulfilling the promises that he has himself declared. We must say to ourselves over and over and over and over and over again, as we're in wilderness and temptations to twist God's way, to use God, if you will, to our ends. I am God's servant. He is not mine. That I will have what he wants me to have, the way he wants me to have it, and when he wants me to have it. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Praying that prayer every morning and evening has a huge effect because it prepares you to receive his kingdom as it comes, especially if it's different than what you expected. 
Otherwise, you may take his words and use them for your ends. Twisting God's way. Well, the third and final temptation in verse 8, the final attack, if you will, reveals Satan's goal at the heart of all this temptation. He doesn't tempt Jesus to make his own way. He doesn't tempt him in this case to twist God's way, but to deny God altogether and to go the way of the world in order to escape the coming suffering. So Jesus knows what it means for him to be king. Jesus knows he's going to be crucified on a cross of a sign of which says the king of the Jews. It's a different kind of coronation than what Satan is offering here. So he's taken from the wilderness again, and he is taken to the top of the temple and finally to a very high mountain to see all the kingdoms of the world. And you think about that. All the kingdoms of the world. That must have been a pretty ridiculous sight. Amazing. He not only sees every nation, he sees all of their glory, it says. Again, amazing. All their power, all of their beauty, all of their wealth, all of their pleasure, all the technology, everything that anyone could ever covet in culture. He sees it all at once. I think sometimes we think of Adam and the garden, we think of Jesus like, well, it wouldn't work on me. Like, whatever, right? Whatever it is you love, whatever it is that you desire, even those good things, right? Keller, Tim Keller often describes the essence of sin, saying it's not that we want bad things, it's that we want good things too badly. And so all the good things that we enjoy right now, we go, oh, and he sees it all. It's all offered to him. What a powerful temptation, the most powerful of temptations. In one moment, he has offered everything there is to offer in the entire world. And this is the world that Jesus does love. It's the world that he has come to save. It's the world he created. It's a very real temptation for Jesus, and it's not simply an offer of power. It's an offer for the king to rule the kingdom that he came for. All he has to do is bow to Satan. This is the temptation of idolatry. I'm sure you've heard about idolatry, talked about idolatry. This is the temptation to worship someone or something other than God, to find your hope in something or someone other than God, to find your security, to find your joy ultimate joy in something or someone other than God. The truth is the devil will give you whatever you want, good or bad, if it will rob God of worship and deny him supremacy in your life. He will give you whatever you want. But Jesus' desires are not so weak as to settle for this kind of thing. Not so pathetic. I say that because Jesus desires something infinitely more 
than the best the world could offer. See, fighting temptation is not necessarily, I just don't want that. It's being captivated by something more beautiful, more powerful, and more glorious, namely God himself. That's the problem that C.S. Lewis said is we settle for so little. A famous quote, I've probably used it in a ton of different sermons. C.S. Lewis wrote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He writes, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, with infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. So when Jesus sees everything, he's like, I can't compare. I can't compare with the glory of God. Jesus doesn't simply want to have a kingdom. He wants the kingdom of God, for he knows nothing can compare with its glory. Nothing can compare with its beauty and its satisfaction. Jesus' response to this temptation is a bold declaration of the first commandment. You shall worship the Lord your God only and serve him only. Did you know that worship and service go together? Defeating this temptation is is more than just a disposition of, oh, God's great. It's leading to action. Jesus didn't walk out of the wilderness, puffed up chest. Well, I just fought off Satan. He began three years of ministry, of sacrifice of walking around and healing and caring and teaching, all that would lead ultimately to his death on a cross. His worship of the Lord led to movement. His worship of the Lord led to action. His worship of the Lord led to the cross. Choosing to worship God means choosing to serve God. They can't be separated. Choosing to serve God in the context of Christ meant choosing the cross. It's no wonder Christ calls us to deny ourselves daily and take up our crosses in worship of him. Christ here conquers Satan. Yes, he wins our salvation through giving up control. He does the very opposite that we would expect He achieves power through sacrifice. He rises to wealth by giving it all away. And those who receive his salvation are not those who are strong, have it all figured out, and are accomplished. It's those who surrender. Those who repent, believe, and follow him in all humility, responding to what he has done for us. Well, as I close, Jesus didn't go into the wilderness for himself. He ultimately went in for those he would bleed and die for.
He suffered through temptation so that he might be able to actually help those who are tempted in their own wildernesses. This is what it says in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Since then we have a high, great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. One who has gone into the wilderness like we find ourselves in, whatever shape it might be. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we might receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Is that where you find yourself in? A time of need? A time of wilderness? It's a very tempting time, a dangerous time, but the wilderness itself is not bad. The circumstances you find yourself in are not evil, but there is an evil one within that wilderness who wants you to take the power into your own hands, to distrust God, to not wait and not go his way, but force your own. Jesus understands this. He understands every temptation that you might be experiencing in your wilderness I know many times where I've pastored and counseled people, and one of the comments often as they're in a, uh, an experience that I haven't personally experienced, they say, you don't get it. And my response is typically, I don't fully understand it. You're right, but there is someone who does, and that's Christ. As you find yourself in your own wilderness, I plead with you not to believe the one lie of the enemy that Luther spoke of, that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and that you need to take matters into your own hands. Don't do that. Please know that you never ever go into wilderness alone and you never go in unarmed. Jesus has promised to never leave us or forsake us even in wilderness. He actually led the way into it and he goes with us into it because he's the only one that can walk us out of it. We can be encouraged that there is no temptation that can conquer us because we know the one who has conquered all of it. God wants you in the wilderness. He wants you in the place of wilderness because he wants you to trust him. And so I'd encourage you to call to him. As you find yourself in this place of devastation, whether it be emotional, physical, material, spiritual, relational, social, whatever it is that you would call to him. Your wilderness is not a curse. Your wilderness is not an accident. Your wilderness is not an enemy. If you are a believer, it is going to be used by God to strengthen you and change you and draw you closer to him in ways that never were possible outside of it. And if you are not a believer, if you don't know Jesus and you find yourself in a wilderness, call to him. He has put you there to draw you into a place of desperation where you realize as all the things in your life fall that you did depend on, all the saviors that you hoped would save you from the hell you now find yourselves in, 
You need Christ. Your wilderness is not a curse. It's not an accident. It's not the enemy. Dare I say, it's a gift from the Lord. A gift to know Him more. A gift to perhaps know Him for the first time. A gift for those who do know Him to depend upon Him more. To be inspired to serve Him and trust Him more because He is worthy to be trusted. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Only you know, Holy Spirit, where everyone is at right now. Only you know the places, Spirit, that you have led us into. The places where we feel lost and confused, the places of decision where you don't know what to decide, the, the place of devastation physically where uh, bodies are breaking down, the devastation emotionally, relationally, things are just breaking around us, Lord. Jesus, you promised never to forsake us, never to leave us. And so I pray that as everything falls away, as every thing that we have depend upon proves to be a really bad and untrustworthy Savior, Lord, that we will turn to you, that we will depend upon you, that we will call out to you in the midst of wilderness. Lord, do not let us be devoured by the enemy who wants us to pridefully believe that we have to take matters into our own hands. But Lord, help us to surrender to you, to draw close to you, and to not only get out of wilderness, Lord, but to be freed from wilderness that we might freely serve and love and worship you. Thank you, Jesus, that you went in first. Thank you, Jesus, that you fought the most powerful temptation, that you defeated sin and Satan and death, that we can have confidence that you are our king, that you rule that you lead and you protect. It is in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen.